Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Dan. Thanks everyone for coming here. And I'm going to be talking, as Dan said, about the dance of radical and moderate religion. And um, I've listened and enjoyed this series. I've listened to the podcasts. And having listened to them, I thought what I want to do is to try and pull things together and look at the really big picture of religion and religions within the whole religious landscape, where radicalism sits, and also situate it in relation to wider society and politics. So I'm kind of pulling the camera back to take a very wide angle on the topic of radical religion. So some of the talks have been focused more on individuals, and when we talk about radicalisation, that's often the way in which the conversation goes People think of it as an individual process. Why do individuals get radicalised? I'm going to complement that by looking at what drives and produces radical religions as social organisations and movements. So there are three very simple parts to my lecture. First of all, I want to look at the different types of religion there are and their potentials to go, rad- to go radical. Secondly, I want to look at why and how religions of all types can go radical, can become radical. And then finally, so what? What do we do about it? What are the implications? And here I want to say a lot more about the dance between radical and moderate religion. So that's, uh, that's the three simple parts to my talk Radical. The previous speakers have very helpfully, I think, agreed on the term, and there's wide agreement that it's not really a scholarly term, it's not really an academic term, but it's a very useful term. It's a term that's got a lot of practical and policy uses. And at its simplest, radical means it's worrisome for policymakers and people in power. Radical worries people in power because it's at odds with the existing order of things that they're trying to uphold. When violence starts to come into the picture, the word extremism gets added. So I'm not going to really talk about extremism particularly. Extremism is radical religion that goes violent. I'm interested in the bigger phenomenon of radical religion. Now, let me start off with um, something that you hear a lot, and that is the idea that at their heart, all religions are fundamentally peaceful. At their heart, all traditions have a teaching of peace. Well, do they really? I think all established religions have a radical and an extremist potential in their very teachings, in their very scriptures, in their ancient in their ancient scriptures. So listen to these statements and see if you can guess where they're from. 
France is a crusader state. They openly curse the prophet. The country stinks of prostitution and obscenity. Paris is on fire because it despises Allah and his prophet. Most people will recognise, when you hear that, that that is a statement from an Islamic extremist group. In fact, it was made uh, in relation to the 2015 bombings in Paris. What about this quotation? Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Correct. Well done, you get the prize. Psalm 137. So that's from the Hebrew Bible, which of course is also the Christian Old Testament. And here's another one, third one. Tradition has always declared that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. They are contrary to natural law. They close the sexual act to the gift of life. They do not proceed from a genuine affective and sexual complementarity. Under no circumstances can they be approved. That's the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. That's the official catechism, the teaching manual of the current Roman Catholic Church. And note that tradition has always declared that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered that idea of a primal religious truth that has always been there. So it's often hard to tell between so-called mainstream and radical religion. And there is in religions the potential to be radical in a, in a variety of ways. So the question is, why does that sometimes get activated and operationalized? So I want to start by um, giving you a very simple framework for thinking about all religion. So I'm not talking about, I'm talking, it applies to the traditions, you know, to Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Sikhism, whatever. This is a bigger way of looking at the different varieties there are within, even within those different traditions. These are, if you like, some of the, the, the fundamental types of religion, the kind of logics that play out over and over again in different forms. And I'm going to propose, this is a proposal I made a long time ago in a book called Religions in Modern Times with Paul Helas. We propose that there are fundamentally three types of religion. That, that, that within, even within traditions, you can find these three types. The first type is a religion of difference. A religion of difference thinks there is, postulates a big difference between the transcendent and between everything else, between God or gods and us. There is a huge gulf. So the, the human and the natural and the divine are very, very different. It's like a radical binary. First type, religions of difference. Second type, Religions of humanity. For these, there's much more likeness between God or gods and humans. And so there's more respect for human consciousness, the human mind, and the human ability 
to connect with God, to have a relationship with the divine, to know God. Because you know, God has... Uh, the Abrahamic religions would say, they'd express it by saying God has created humans in God's image. There's, some li- there's enough likeness uh, that humans can have a close relationship with the divine. So that second type I'm calling religions of humanity. And then finally, the third main type of religion you find around the world, I'm calling spiritualities of life. Spiritualities of life. And in this sort, the divine is actually bound up with us. There is a spirit or spirits that are everywhere. They're here in this room. They're with us now. And we can at any moment recognize the fact that they are, they're our own deepest nature. There are God, you know, we, have a, we have a divine within us. We can access the divine through our own experience, introspection, spiritual and meditative practices. Spirit is the basis of everything. Spirit flows through the whole of the natural world and through us. And it connects all of us. So, there's, so the differences again collapsed more between the divine and everything else. And that's uh, spirituality of life. Uh, see the whole, the whole natural order. Nature is more central in their view of things, closer to God. Well, as well as those differences in, in um, you might call it theology in the broad sense, in how they think about the transcendent and us, there are differences in where, where, how they see authority. In religions of difference, authority is absolutely external. We don't have access to it. It's only because God, or gods, gives us teaching, revelation, scriptures, inspiration, that we can know anything at all about that other, because God is other. So we can only know, because we're so much insignificant compared to God, we can only know if God speaks to us. So there's a very strong view of the external authority of the divine, and often that's um, encapsulated in a scripture, or in traditional practices, and often in a, in, a, in, a, in a clergy, in a priesthood, in designated mediators between gods and us. So for religions of difference, authority is outside, and you have to bend your human will to it. In religions of humanity, there's more connection. We can come close to knowing something about God, but never fully. And really, often you need mediation again. You need experts. You need teachers. You need people who are trained and learned and wise to help. You know, they've got authority um, to help connect us. Then, of course, in spirituality of life, the third type, don't look outside ever. You look within. You're only going to find the divine within. And so practices of prayer and meditation and stillness are going to be very central because it's there that you connect with the spirit that indwells. Or if you're a Quaker, for example, Quakerism is a good example of a spirituality of life. You sit in silence in a Quaker meeting house and sometimes you just sit in silence. And the spirit, the inner light, illuminates and sometimes somebody's moved to speak. The spirit is speaking through them. You're channeling the spirit. 
And then one final difference between them, they often, those three types of religion often have a different temporal horizon. They have a different way of thinking about time. So religions of difference tend to look back to a glorious, pure past, the early church, the first Muslim communities, um, the moment of creation, um, or you know, a primal time. They think there's a primal, original state that we need to return to. Religions of humanity are much more future-oriented. They tend to think that, because humans, they have a high view of humans, so when humans uh, exercise their, their reason, things are going to get better and progress, and we will get closer and closer to the kingdom of God, we'll get closer to knowing the divine, we'll become more peaceful, we'll become better over time. They're quite future-oriented. And spiritualists of life tend to think of time as a spiral, so it's a bit like the seasons. It goes round and round and round. So it can be circular or it can be spiral. In other words, the seasons go round every year, but they're still different each year. Um, that's a different conception of time. So um, um, Asian religions, where spiritualities of life tend to be more important within them, for example, think of, have, think of a single creation and a single end of time. They think of these aeons of cycles of time. Okay, now, all three religious traditions, Islam, Christianity, Hinduism, whatever, have all got those three types within them. You know, you can find a mystical strand, a sort of spirituality of life strand, in all the great traditions. You can find the humanistic strand in them all. You can find the differentiating strand in them all. And often within the religions, there's a lot of argument, and worse sometimes, war, between their own followers who say, no, my thought's the true, the true Hinduism, the true Christianity, the true whatever it might be, and, and fight with one another over that. Now, my point in looking at all this is to give us a good foundation for thinking about radical religion, because I believe that any one of those three types can go radical. Any one of them has got a potential to be radical. The most obvious, and the one you've heard about more in this series on radical religion, is religions of difference. That's the most typical. You know, it's almost inherent in the logic of religion of difference. Sociologically, it will maintain a sharp edge to wider society. Religions of difference, in their very logic, think that, that they are us and you are them. You're either in or you're out. And the whole of society is out, and the, the saved, the people within the religion, are in. So it's very us and them. And often there's a metaphor of war of us and them. The assumption is that all those who haven't joined us are against us. They won't understand us. How could they? And they will try to foil us, and they might even fight against us. So they maintain a sharp edge to other religions, to other sorts of religion within their own tradition, and to society and culture, especially where there's a consensus. And they try not to accommodate to the consensus. So religious difference will often pick a flagship issue or issues on which to fight. 
Now, it so happens that in the modern world, the issue that they, in all the traditions, they seem to have picked is gender and sexuality. They fight against, they see modern culture as tainted and rotten because of its toleration of promiscuity, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality. Um, the Patriarch of Moscow, last week, our colleague Marat Sterin translated his sermon on Ash Wednesday, and that's what he was beating, um, beating up parts of Ukraine for, for having a gay pride parade. So it's very common to take that issue. Could it be any issue? Yes, I think it probably could. I think religions different can pick any issue they want. Um, why they pick gender and sexuality is a really interesting question. I mean, a feminist would say it's because they're inherently patriarchal. Perhaps that's true. Um, but they could pick any other, they could pick any other topic to fight over to make the difference between black and white, us and them. So obviously this causes policymakers, wider cultural institutions, a lot of concern. And you get flashpoint issues where wider values, much more tolerant in relation to gender and sexuality, clash with people with religions of difference. Like you did over just recently in, in Britain over making sexual relationship education compulsory in schools, which led to some protests by people who represent religions of difference. Now, uh, you might be thinking, is religion difference the same as fundamentalism? Um, in the modern world, yes, but as you, as you know, fundamentalism is a modern phenomenon. It only, fundamentalism, Christian starts with Christianity at the beginning of the 20th century, whereas religions of difference go right back, way back before that. So fundamentalism is a is the form that religion of difference really takes in the modern world. But it's not only religion of difference that can go radical. You might think, well, the least likely to go radical is the spirituality of life. But actually, spiritualities of life can be very radical. They often want to take a very alternative view to mainstream religion and mainstream culture. It might be at the sort of political left rather than the political right. Um, Think of some examples. Um, well, in China, Falun Gong uh, is a, a movement of bodily posture and meditation. Um, it involves energy exercises, and it's, in a sense, pretty individualistic, like spiritual lines of life often are. But it, it's banned by the Chinese government. It's actively persecuted because it's at odds with wider cultural values, and it's got a lot of followers. Or take eco-spirituality. Feminist and ecologically focused spirituality starts to really develop in the 1970s, and it, had a, it has and had a very radical edge. It was very opposed to the way that capitalist society was going in terms of how it treated the planet. It was very opposed to patriarchy. It was very opposed to um, violence, and particularly at the time, nuclear weapons. And so eco-spirituality leads to things like the reforming collective in San Francisco, led by Starhawk, who wrote The Spiral Dance, that protested about many things in California. And over here, it led to the Green and Common protests against nuclear Trident missiles, uh, which were very prominent and caused policymakers a lot of bother, with a lot of women camping for literally years outside those nuclear bases. 
So spiritualities of life have a very radical potential as well as religions of difference. Or also on the right. Right now in Ukraine and Russia, there are regiments of right-wing pagan spiritual fighters. You saw right-wing occult spiritual fighters in the storming of the capital with symbols of Odin and pre-Christian pagan religions. So that's there as well. And even religions of humanity can turn radical. Dan mentioned that my chair is called the F.D. Morris Professor. Well, F.D. Morris was a very sort of mainstream Church of England clergyman and professor, but he objected in the 19th century to the doctrine of eternal punishment of hell as you know, being burned forever in Christian teaching. And he was sacked from the, his professorship at King's College for denying the reality of eternal hell. So mainstream uh, religions of humanity people can, can, can be bothersome to wider society. He was also a Christian socialist. It was seen, I mean, the reason it was so bothersome to people was because hell was seen as a way of controlling people, particularly working class people, uh, from a fear of stepping out of line. So he was being very subversive in, in questioning it. Ah, the, the banging, the traditional banging. I hear it on the podcast. <laughs> okay, so my second question, second part of my lecture was, what, so what makes religion go radical? If any of those types can go radical, what makes them go radical? Well, those of you who know about the study of religion or the sociology of religion, which is my field, know that there are lots of explanations of the opposite. There are lots of explanations that explain why religions of difference or fundamentalisms gradually decline and become much more liberal and much more like religions of humanity. There are lots of accounts of that by people called like James Davison Hunter or Steve Bruce. Or even Max Weber, who talked about the routinization of charisma. You know, enthusiasm wanes and people become more moderate. But people don't often look at the opposite, which is what we want to look at. Why do some religions and their leaders move to increasingly radical positions? Okay, there are some clues. Clue number one comes from the rise of Christian fundamentalism at the start of the 20th century. It was a reaction to two things. First of all, it was a reaction to religions of humanity and Christianity, to liberal Christianity. It was a reaction against the way that the, the American churches were becoming more and more religion of humanity focused in terms of thinking of progress, we're close to God, we can know God, and so on. It was a reaction against that. The fundamentalists hated that development in Christianity, and they particularly hated uh, the use of human reason and historical reason to interpret the Bible. But it was also a reaction to modern secularism in general. So it's a reaction to two things, to liberal religion and to modern secularism. But they're run together. They run together in fundamentalism. They see them both as, you know, the religion to humanity people, they're wrong because they've just surrendered to the spirit of the age, to modernity and secularism. They're just weak Christians. They're not seen as 
having a valid stance of their own. And so one reason uh, people become more radical is they're fighting within their own tradition. So at the moment, in the Catholic Church, you know, poor Pope Francis is completely torn. You've got the old retired conservative Pope, and you've got the more religion of humanity Pope. And their followers are completely at odds with each other. The whole church is riven between those who are religions of difference and those who are religion of humanity. So the Catholic Church is fighting about everything. That dynamic drives radical religion. Trying, you know, and there's a lot at stake. You're trying to capture the whole church, the whole tradition, with your version. Okay, clue number two comes from a really interesting article which looked at what happened to religion in Israel. You'll know, if you know about Israel, that there's a huge ultra-Orthodox um, religion of difference community in Israel, and that it's grown. You know, contrary to people who thought secularization would lead to the decline of religions of difference, it's been growing in, the, in, in Judaism and in, and in Judaism more widely. So, Charles Liebman, L-I-E-B-M-A-N, Charles Liebman wrote an article in 1983 called Extremism as a Religious Norm. Extremism as a Religious Norm. And the title is a really good one because his argument was, is against most thinking, which is that extremism is the norm for religion. Religion naturally drifts not towards liberalism, but towards extremism. And he really means um, what we're calling radicalism. Hardline religion of difference. Now, why does it? Liebman tries to answer why, looking at what's happened in Israel. And he says, what moves religion, it's moving along an extremist track unless something intervenes to stop it. What propels it along the extremist track? He says these things. He says, first of all, you can always purify. You know, religions of difference are driven by purifiers. Their prophets all say, we've got to purify the religion. It's become really lazy and corrupted, and it's embracing homosexuality and bad practices, and it's forgotten about the glory of God, or something like that. And we've got to purify our morals and our doctrine and our teaching. Now, you can always purify, Liebsman points out, you can always purify a bit more. You can always say, well, I'm purer than Dan. Dan's a bit loose on this teaching, and then I can take over your position. It's a power play by being purer than you are. And the purifier seems more real, more religious, more obedient to God, the courageous defender of truth. So people are quite swayed by the person who says, I'm the real purifier. Then he can make a power grab, um, either taking over from Dan or schismatically leading my followers into a different, a different movement. Liebman also points out, another of his points is you can never go backwards. Once you've taken that purifying step, you can never say, oh, I was wrong. Actually, I'm going to liberalise a bit. Actually, let's allow women to not wear headscarves or whatever it might be. You can't go backwards and say you were wrong because you've said you've got the truth and you're obeying the divine and that truth is unchanging. So if you admit fallibility, it really brings things crashing down. So you can't admit to mistakes. You can't, you've got to double down rather than reform. And then finally, um, 
Lehman points out that this makes these religions of difference organisationally very strong. They're very pure ones because they demand there's a high cost, there's high, high level of obedience and clear leadership and a lot of unanimity over beliefs and the aims of the movement. And so they're very effective organisationally. And so they often do succeed in making a, making a big play for power and being successful and, and even taking over. When the leader says jump, people jump, even, even to death. There are lots of examples of leaders leading their followers to suicide when threatened. And one final thing that he doesn't really mention, but social psychologists of fundamentalism mention, is that religious difference get reinforced by the fact that opposition is confirmatory. So if I say, you know, oranges are poisonous or something strange, and you all say, don't be ridiculous, I just had an orange for breakfast, I say, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? I mean, they would say that. You would say that because you don't understand and you're, you're opposed to me anyway. The more, you den the, more you, the more you deny what I'm telling you, the more that confirms my own belief because I've got that difference. I'm making that difference the whole time. So you never argue with somebody like this by saying you're wrong because they want you to say you're wrong because they know that you're, they know that you're on an op the opposite side of the, of the fence. So opposition just reinforces commitment. Okay, clue number three. Um, I take this from Islam today in Europe. Clue number three is what you see in a lot of young, young Muslims for the last couple of generations have been rejecting the religion of their parents from wherever it came from, um, from India or Pakistan or wherever, as enculturated, as not pure. It's too enculturated. So they want to learn about real Islam and learn more about the, what the Quran says, perhaps even learn Arabic. And so there's this desire to seek greater purity. And that is strongest amongst people who want to set themselves aside from mainstream society with all its problems, with its Islamophobia, with its inequalities, with the many, the many problems that can be seen in it. So you can see here amongst our you know, friends and colleagues, you can see the same dynamic at work, pushing towards a greater, more purity and more radical form. So radicalization has to do with fighting and setting yourself against some people in your own religion and a wider society. And of course, there are often good reasons to do that. So finally, my third final part, I'm turning to the question of so what? And well, is there anything you can do to stop this drift towards the radical or what Liebman calls the extremist norm? And of course, that's a question that preoccupies um, political leaders and um, people responsible for security in particular. Now, currently in the UK, the policy really has been tolerate and ignore what's happening in any religion. Tolerate and ignore if you can. Or tolerate and accommodate. So 
And human rights law encourages tolerate and accommodate because human rights law, as you know, says that there is a right to religious freedom. And under that right, religious leaders of all sorts have claimed exemptions from the law that binds the rest of us. So if you take the 2010 equality law, it, it, um, it enshrines equality and non-discrimination on the basis of five grounds like gender and sexuality and age and disability and so on. Well, religions have won an exemption for themselves, particularly to the part about sexuality and gender. So the Catholic Church can still just, just um, employ male priests, for example, and um, all the churches, including the Church of England, the national church of still the established national church, uh, can refuse to bless or marry same-sex couples, which it does. Now, it would be sued under human rights law normally, but it's got an exemption, and it won that by lobbying the government. So that's very common. Tolerate and accommodate. And then, thirdly, what does the government do? When there's real extremism, it cracks down in a reactive way. So it only intervenes when there's violence and real security threat, and then it comes down very hard and it, it, you know, it's, it starts to learn how to deal with a threat, like prevent the threat. Is there a better way? Is there a better way than that? I think that's actually quite a dangerous strategy. You know, wait till there's a really big problem. Wait till it's developed. Wait till the, there's a boil and then, and then try and sort it out. But it's going to burst. Well, there's a much more historical answer, which is why all religion hasn't gone radical always. And the historical answer is that you moderate from within the religions themselves with quite a bit of state support. So, for example, I mean, sometimes you can just accommodate without state support. If you take the Roman Catholic Church, um, which has been around for 2,000 and more years, so a very successful institution, it accommodates its radical wings. Think about the Franciscans, the mendicant orders in the medieval period, or the Jesuits. These could have been schismatic forms of Catholicism, but the church, it, it assimilates them. It gives them privileges, it, it embraces them, and it says, we'll sort of hug you to ourselves and we'll gradually control you. And, and they did, and they have. Think of things like training and licensing clergy. In Europe, the training and licensing of clergy in some countries, like Scandinavia, is a state-funded and run operation that is discharged through universities. So if you want to become a clergy person, you go to university and you do a theology degree. So it's in that way, it's moderated through academic study and higher education. And in Holland and other European countries, there are now programmes to do exactly the same for other religious leaders, including... Muslim leaders, again, with the, with, the, with the aim of moderating through education. The other way that, that um, states work with religion to moderate is through having lots of insertion points in society, like religious schools. This country, a third of all state schools in this country are religious schools, mostly Catholic and Anglican, but also some Muslim, Hindu, um, and a few others. 
so you allow, you, you fund religions to run their own schools. But of course, you don't just give them completely free reign. They've got to deliver a certain curriculum, and they're bound by regulations that, that uh, bind other schools, and they've got to deliver sex education and so on. So again, you, you moderate through that insertion point. Or you can insist on things about women's leadership. Or you can go to the extreme where the state has real control. If you take Denmark, for example, I mean, it's not just true of Denmark, it's true of an awful lot of most nations around the world have an established religion, you know, state-controlled religion, favoured religion. If you take Denmark, though, it's got a ministry of religion and a minister of religion, and when the state changes its law, the church has to change its law, the Church of Denmark. When the state of Denmark voted for same-sex marriage quite a long time ago, the minister for religion says to the Church of Denmark and its clergy, you are going to marry same-sex people. Don't care if you don't like it, don't care if it's not in, in the Bible, that's what you're going to do because you're the Church of Denmark and they, they do it. That's the extreme of sort of state, state regulation. So finally then, what have I been saying? I've been saying that any kind of religion can radicalise any of the three types, religions of difference, religions of humanity, spiritualities of life, can radicalise. And perhaps there is a natural drift to do that if you don't intervene. And so it requires intelligent and constant moderation, mostly within the religion. That's the dance of moderate and radical religion. Moderates are continually talking to and controlling over historical periods and fighting with the more radical elements within their religious tradition. That has always been the case. And sometimes the state is involved in that process too. That doesn't mean you completely crush radical religion because radical religion is often a cutting edge for change. And it has that potential as well as the potential for repression and danger. So it is a complex dance. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.